Welcome to another edition of Focus on the Kingdom. This is Anthony Buzzard inviting you again to continue with our search for vital information in regard to Jesus' favorite topic, what he called the gospel about the kingdom of God. Our point of view on this program is that Jesus must be understood in his own first century Jewish-Palestinian environment. It's a considerable mistake to think that one can make a relationship with Jesus without understanding his mind. You may remember that in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 17, Paul spoke about us Christians being joined to Jesus as one spirit or one mind. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and verse 16, he declared that Christians are to have the mind or the spirit of Christ. Now, how can we have the mind and the spirit of Christ? How indeed can we relate to him and be on his wavelength unless we understand his teaching. There are some today who seem to think that salvation consists only in believing that Jesus died and that he rose again. Now, that's clearly not what the New Testament teaches. The Bible everywhere urges us to understand the teaching and the mind and the spirit of Jesus. The term Holy Spirit in the Bible is equivalent to the operational presence of God. Holy Spirit is the mind of God extended to his creation. The Holy Spirit, in fact, is contained in the words of God in Scripture. All Scripture is inspirited by God. It contains the very spirit and energy, vitality of God himself. The Bible comes to us from God as a kind of love letter, revealing the mind of the Father. And the mind of the Father was displayed, of course, supremely in his ultimate agent, the Son of God, Jesus the Messiah. You remember that John in 1 John 2.27 said, As for you Christians, the anointing which you receive from him abides in you. And a few verses later, in 1 John 3, verse 9, John speaks about the seed of God abiding in us. Now, what is that seed if not the seed message about the kingdom of God? Now, the seed was explicitly defined by Jesus in his famous parable of the seed and the soils. In Luke 8, verse 11, he said, The seed is the word of God. And that word of God is more clearly defined in Matthew's version of the same parable. Matthew 13:19 speaks of the seed message as the gospel or word about the kingdom. And it's that message of the kingdom, that gospel or good news message about the kingdom, which must take root in our hearts in order for the salvation process to get underway. That's why in Luke 8, 12, we read that the devil is intent on one purpose, to snatch the message of the kingdom out of the heart of the potential believer so that, as Jesus said, he may not be saved. Let me read you that exact text in Luke 8, verse 12. Those beside the road are those who have heard the message of the kingdom, that is. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart, so that they may not believe it and be saved. Do you see that, that believing, the act of faith and believing, is the link between God and his message and us as a potential convert? Believing is the means by which we link up to God's message. That vital connection is established between God and man when faith operates to believe the message of the kingdom as Jesus preached it. Jesus was the great bearer of the message, the gospel message of the kingdom. He's the one who came preaching the gospel of salvation, 
Now, his death and resurrection, of course, were later added to the message, but the foundation of the Christian gospel lies in that message and information, that seed word of the kingdom of God. That's the anointing which must come to the potential believer, and it's the seed, according to 1 John 3, 9, which must abide in us. The seed and the word and the message and the gospel of the kingdom of God are all equivalents. Indeed, they're equivalent also to the Spirit. The Spirit is nothing more than the mind of God conveyed to us via that message of the kingdom brought by Jesus. And so we must come in contact with the saving message of the kingdom. That provides for us the vitality and the life of God, a germ indeed of immortality, which must take root in our hearts now and will eventually result in our becoming immortal beings at the resurrection. Such is the simple process of salvation outlined in the Bible, but it's perilously easy to be moved away from that simplicity. It's quite possible for the gospel to be stripped of some of its saving elements. Sometimes you hear it said that Jesus came only to die and to be raised, and that the gift of salvation is imparted by belief in his death and resurrection. But that's not true. The gift of immortality is imparted also by his saving message about the kingdom. That's the seed, the spark of life, which must take root in our hearts if we're to embark upon the road that leads to immortality in the future kingdom of God. The Holy Spirit in the Bible is almost equivalent to a holy message, a sacred message coming from God to us. And that sacred message must be grasped by the intellect, taken in by the mind, and we must then hold fast to it so that it lodges in our hearts permanently. With that, then, we shall be enabled to grow, because the message of the power of God, the creative word of God, will increase within us and produce fruit which will guarantee our entrance into the kingdom of God when Jesus returns to this earth to establish that kingdom upon the earth. Matthew 5, verse 5. Now, the message is obviously critical for the salvation process. Nothing must be removed from the message, and nothing must be added to it. In Colossians 3.16, Paul said, Let the message of Christ, that's to say, the gospel of the kingdom as Jesus preached it, Christ's gospel, Christ's word or message, let that word of Christ richly dwell within you. Now, John's equivalent language is that the seed of God should abide in us, or that the Spirit of God should be in us. Whether we say word or spirit or seed, it makes no difference. We're simply referring to the gospel message as preached first by Jesus and then by all the apostles. No wonder that in Acts 8.12 we read that when they received the message of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were ready to be baptized, initiated into the faith, so that they could set out on the journey that leads to immortality in the future kingdom. In Ephesians 3 and verse 16, Paul desired that Christ would strengthen the converts with power through his Spirit in the inner man. He wanted Christ to dwell in the hearts of the converts. In the equivalent passage in Colossians 3.16, he desired that the word of Christ would dwell in the hearts of the converts. And in order to define that word accurately, we must always go back to the great parent text, the gospel of the kingdom of God as Jesus preached it. 
No wonder then that in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, Paul speaks of the Word of God, which is also at work as an energy in you who believe. There's power in that Word to work in our lives to produce the character of Jesus Christ, but this depends on a sensible and intelligent understanding of the message and the teaching of Jesus, what he called the gospel about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is nothing less than the liberation of the land of Palestine in the future. One day Jesus is going to come back to free the land of Palestine from anti-Christian forces, and he's going to establish a sane and sound government whose effects will prevail across the earth. That's what's meant by the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is a kind of code word in the New Testament. It stands for the time when Israel, the land of Israel and Palestine, will be freed from foreign domination and God's kingdom, exercised by the authority of his son, the Messiah, will take charge of that land. And from that land, with its headquarters in Jerusalem, the effects of the kingdom will spread far and wide to the far corners of the earth. The kingdom of God will extend its influence throughout all populations. All nation-states will be transformed by the presence of Jesus returned as the Messiah to take up his power on the throne of David, as all the prophets of the Hebrew Bible have foreseen. That re-establishment of peace on the earth is what Jesus meant by the gospel or good news of the kingdom of God. Surely that's the greatest good news that could ever be offered to mankind, a time coming when our present intractable problems, our suicides, our divorces, our child abuse, our drug-taking, our murders, and so on, will be banished from society. There will be peace on the earth as Jesus and the saints take over the world and govern it in peace and righteousness and justice. That's what Jesus meant by the good news of the coming kingdom. Blessed be the coming kingdom of our father David, we read in Mark chapter 11, verse 10. That was the hope of the liberation of Palestine and Israel from foreign domination and the establishment of the Messiah's government, God's very kingdom, as God rules through the Messiah and with him and with the cooperation of the saints of all the ages who at that time will have been resurrected from the dead to immortality to take their places as government officials with Jesus in the kingdom of God. To him who overcomes, Jesus says in Revelation 3, verse 21, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. And in Revelation 2 and verse 26, the following reward is offered to the faithful Christian. Jesus said this, he who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will grant authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father. Jesus had offered exactly the same reward to his faithful apostles on the occasion of the Last Supper, do you remember that he said in Luke 22, verses 28 to 30, You apostles are those who have stood by me during my trials, and just as my Father has covenanted me a kingdom, I covenant to you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, 
and you will sit on thrones to administer the twelve tribes of Israel. Jesus there, of course, was referring to that time when on the earth he and the apostles, in company with the rest of the saints of all the ages, will administer a new government, the kingdom of God, on the earth. This, I must point out to you, has nothing to do with some distant heaven, much less does it describe a place for disembodied souls. We're talking about real thrones and real people on the earth, immortalized saints administering a new kingdom on the earth with Jesus when he returns. That same great truth is found also in Revelation 5 and verse 10, where the twenty-four elders break forth into a song of praise to the Lamb, to the Messiah, and they say of the Messiah, You have made the saints to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign as kings upon the earth. It should be pretty clear to any unprejudiced reader of the Bible that the destiny of the Christian is not to disappear to heaven, but to reign as a king with Christ upon the earth. Revelation 5 and verse 10. We have a number of pieces of literature we'd like to offer to you for your personal Bible study at home. Firstly, our kingdom book, The Kingdom of the Messiah, A Solution to the Riddle of the New Testament. We'd like to send this to you for your personal examination in the quiet of your own home. Check the verses we've been referring to and see if they don't make beautiful sense of the text of Scripture. The Bible may come alive for you in a new way as you see the great destiny of the Christian is to rule with Christ on the earth in the future when Jesus returns. We invite you to join us again as we continue with our investigation of Jesus' favorite topic, the gospel about the kingdom of God.